<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. First of all, thank you all for the nice emails, the letters of support for the Writers Guild strike. Solidarity. <laughs> okay, this week and next, I have a great guest, Wendy Liebman, who is not just a comedian, but a really, really funny one. 1996, she won the American Comedy Award for Female Comedian of the Year. She's appeared on The Tonight Show, Larry Sanders, Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, all the Jimmys, David Letterman. She's had a couple of Showtime specials. She was a semi-finalist on America's Got Talent, and she's going to talk a lot about the business and craft of stand-up comedy. So Wendy Liebman is my guest this week and next. And first, I thought, well, in case you're not familiar with her, why don't I play you a sample of her stand-up act? So I am 56. I turned 56 in February. And since then, I forget everything. Like, that I'm 60. Now when a guy is staring at my breasts, I'm like, hey, buddy, they're down there, actually. <laughs> I'm old enough to remember when you could smoke on a plane. I mean, you can still do it now, but they fine you $2,200, I found out. <laughs> I am so... 60 years old. I... The only thing I mind is that, other than that, society thinks that, you know, I'm not important and my life is over and I feel like I'm just starting my second act as a librarian in Maine. <laughs> the only thing I mind is that I started getting an old lady's clothing catalog that I didn't subscribe to and it upset me that I love the tunics <laughs> they're reversible <laughs> but fuck it I'm 60 that's my new mantra I will buy crepe race and a walk-in tub and a pickleball racket and compression socks and 
case of insure and one of those hurricanes and a statement necklace from Chico's. <laughs> Fuck it, I'm 60. And I'm not apologizing anymore. I love myself now. Well, I, I, I can stand myself. <laughs> 35 years of therapy later. You know what? <laughs> I still wish I didn't procrastinate as much. Like I just did the ice bucket challenge. And, uh, And I wish I could fall asleep better, because like once I'm asleep, I could sleep through anything. Like I once slept through college, um, but it, it's hard for me. It takes me a long time to fall asleep because I'm always worried. I'm worried about like nuclear war and did I buy too many forever stamps? Um, and then I wonder silly things like, um, why does my raincoat say dry clean only? <laughs> Who builds the Ikea stores? <laughs> Why isn't there an 82 cent store for women since that's what we make on the dollar? And isn't Cobbler just fucked up pie? Well, first of all, let's get your origin story. Where are you from originally? Where'd you go to college? I'm originally from New York, Long Island, <clears throat> Roslyn Heights. 110 Crescent Lane. <laughs> Where was your room? <laughs> uh, the one on the left with the green shag carpet and the ugly wallpaper that I picked out when I was 11. <laughs> <laughs> and um, when I went to college in Boston, I wanted to go to Brown, but I was waitlisted and I'm still waiting. <laughs> but I went to Wellesley College. Um and I studied a lot of philosophy. I still have no idea why I can, but I... Um, but for the money. For the money, yes. Yeah. A penny for my thoughts. Um, and then I studied psychology. I was going to be a therapist. Yeah, I studied psychology at UCLA. The only time it came in handy was writing psychobabble for Frazier. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's come in handy um, with all of my boyfriends. And, <laughs> but I say that I studied psychology because I was going to be a therapist, but instead I went into therapy and stand-up comedy. So how did you get into stand-up comedy? Well, it's one of those circuitous stories where I took the mail in from the wrong apartment building. And... <laughs> In it was a course catalog for an adult education center, the Cambridge Center for Adult Education. I was living in Boston. And um, 
the real story is I took an acting class because I had always done a lot of theater growing up. I was Eliza and My Fair Lady. That really was the highlight of my life. And I was um, Dorothy in Wizard of Oz. And uh, so I took an acting class thinking I'll get back into that. And the teacher quit mid-class. So uh, at the break, he didn't come back. So the adult ed center said, pick another class. So I'm thumbing through the catalog again, and I see how to be a stand-up comedian. And I swear, the angels sang. I, it, it was like one of those flashbulb moments where I thought, oh, my God, I want to take this class. I don't know why I didn't see it at first. And, were you always funny? You Did know, you know you were funny? I was funny when I was little. I remember trying to make everybody laugh at Thanksgiving, but I was a prop comic at that point. <laughs> I put on <laughs> put on a tutu, and I remember pulling up one sock, thinking that the asymmetry of the socks would be hilarious, and I got laughs that way. Um, and then I wasn't funny again until my senior year of college, um, where I used. I used humor to get a job once and I was, I was innately funny. Yes. That, but, but it took a lot of years off, you know, high school, I was very foreboding and um, dark. How'd you use humor to get the job? What was the job? Well, it was to be head of house in my, uh, of my dorm. And the interview was with about six people and I really just had everybody laughing and people like to laugh. So I don't remember exactly what I said, but I was funny. And you mentioned that you, you basically kind of toned it down when you were in high school. Is it because there's sort of that suggestion that, guys are intimidated by by girls who are funny i never had that in my head in the same way that i never thought of myself as a female comedian i just thought of myself as a comedian but my best friend beth uh and i were friends with like six guys and humor was kind of a currency um, but I'm trying to answer your question about, was I, did I tone myself down? No, they were just funnier. <laughs> <laughs> that you were with funnier people. Yeah. Yeah. That was part of my problem in high school is that there weren't a lot of other funny people to bounce things off of. Interesting. Well, it's interesting because my best friend, Beth, is the funniest person I know still, but she never would have any inclination to be a comedian. Like she's just funny in life. And I've often wondered why I wasn't just like the funniest kindergarten teacher or the funniest advertising executive, you know, using my humor in a different way. Um, and probably, you know, probably we can check with my therapist on that one. <laughs> yeah, my son, Matt, also is very funny. Didn't go into the industry, 
works at Apple computers and is involved with all of these teams uh, designing computers. And, and I say, you must be the Robin Williams of Apple. Right. <laughs> I know. And, and I, I did find that um, maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but using sense of humor to help raise my stepsons, I think they really appreciated that I, not that I made light of things, but I remember the first time my six-year-old, when he was six, now he's like 28, when he was six, he made us all laugh hysterically. And we all remember that moment because he was using his sense of humor um, in a positive way. And yeah. I have my, my granddaughter, Becca, who is turning seven, when she was a year and a half, we took her to breakfast and she stuck her finger through half a bagel and turned to me and said, now that's funny. <laughs> 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 and you're right, you do remember moments like that. So so you take this stand-up class. Uh, did you have to do a, an open mic night? Uh, talk a little bit about the, the early stand-up. Well, the class was really just an excuse to get together with a bunch of like-minded people and drink beer afterwards. And- mm-hmm in harvard square they didn't do that to philosophy huh no uh no but they chain smoked together but um i'm still friends with my teacher ron lynch who has since been on the sarah silverman program and on bob's burgers like he's a bona fide comedian um and there were a few other people not in my class but in one of his classes who have gone on to pursue comedy. But for the most part, it was just a bunch of people who wanted to do something fun at night. And we all had to write five minutes and then perform it uh, first for the class and then at a club called Stitches in Boston. And um, I remember after I performed, I got off stage and my friend said, um, well, you were great, but nobody could hear a word you said. <laughs> <laughs> but then I was um, going to work the next day. At that point, I worked at Houghton Mifflin um, Publishing. I was a secretary to one of the um, editors. They actually made up words to put in the dictionary. But I remember being on the T, passing stitches, And having this pride, like I was on that stage last night. And, you know, once you do stand up, it's really addictive. So you then started going to the clubs at at night, I guess, going back to Stitches, open mic night. What year was this? What what time period are we talking about? 1985. Okay. There were clubs called Play It Again Sam's. the Comedy Connection, Nick's, which I did uh, infrequently, but it was still one of those clubs. And then later, Catch a Rising Star in Harvard Square became my home club. And at that time, there were like clubs everywhere in Boston. So I would 
in the satellite regions, like in bars and bowling alleys. And I would go out every night to at least one or two or maybe three sometimes open mic nights, just learning, learning. And um, I still learn from every show. Every show is like a little experiment. And there are only a few variables that I can control, but most of it is out of my control. You record every performance and go back and listen to it and critique yourself? I don't. <laughs> I know that I should. Um, and I know people who do, but I I have never adopted that practice. Now, in the mid-70s, and I used to, when I was breaking in trying to be a comedy writer and I lived near the comedy store. So back in those days, you go on a Tuesday night and you buy a drink and sit at the bar and there's Richard Pryor coming on. So I got to see and meet a lot of those comedians who were kind of the regulars, you know, Gary Shandling and David Letterman and crazy Charlie Fleischer and Gary Mule Deer and, and all of these guys. And it was kind of an interesting dynamic because on the one hand, they were all very much in competition with each other. And yet on the other, there was kind of a kinship and they sort of supported each other. Did you have that feeling? You must have seen the same 12 people going from club to club. Yes, the comedians in my circle were Brian Kiley, who is my favorite stand-up comedian. Um, he went on to write for Conan for his whole run, uh, but he still does stand-up as much as he can. He was in my group, a guy named Brian Frazier, who has now gone on to do um, uh, cartoons. He was just published in The New Yorker. Um a guy named Mike Martineau, who has since passed, a woman named Cindy Freeman, who has gone on to do burlesque, <laughs> and Laura Keitlinger and David Cross was always there. Mark Marin was there, Janine Garofalo. So um, I got to see amazing comedians. And your question was about competition, maybe? Yeah. Did you feel that it was very competitive or did you feel, like you say, that people were supportive? I mean, would somebody come up to you and go, you know what would work better with that joke? If you put the word here, you tried that, do you help each other? We did. I mean, uh -huh. we still do. I still will write to Jimmy Brogan and say, I have this punchline but I don't know what the setup is <laughs> and um, now I even go on Facebook and crowdsource but I don't want to sound Pollyanna but I I never really felt competitive maybe a little bit at the beginning with the female comics because there were only a few spaces for us mm -hmm. and even though I never thought of myself as a female comic I just thought of myself as a comic um, I knew the reality that they weren't putting on two com female comedians on one show. So in that sense, 
maybe there was a little of that if I have to be honest. But yeah, now, yeah. but now I love like my friend Kathy Ladman just got on the Tonight Show in her late sixties, and I'm like so thrilled because it just if she can do it, I can do it. Yeah, I remember talking to Elaine Boozler, who is a friend, and she was saying that for the longest time, Johnny Carson would not book a woman comedian on The Tonight Show. Hmm. He just didn't think they were funny, and he just didn't book women comedians, which is pretty stupid on his part. I remember (laughs) watching comedians on The Tonight Show when I was little, and... Well, first, I thought that they were making their setup on the spot. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I really did. I really thought that. And then I remember feeling so incredibly nervous for them until they got a laugh. And then I could relax. But I've told this story many, many times. But when I was like 11, I heard Phyllis Stiller on Merv Griffin or Mike Douglas saying you have to hit them and then once they think they're done laughing you have to hit them again and I'm 11 going I know what you mean lady so like I I'm veering from your question but no but that's great did you have role models like Phyllis Stiller growing up I loved Phyllis Stiller I I loved Lily Tomlin. I loved Barbara Streisand and Cher and Flip Wilson. And also I remember laughing with my father, which is one of my favorite things to do. Um, He took me to see the Harlem Globetrotters and that was just joyous. We loved to laugh together. So um, yeah, laughing was a big part of of why I do stand-up comedy because in the early years I got to see every headliner come through um, and it was all free because I could just walk into the club. That's great. Yeah, no, same thing for me as as a kid. Uh, You know, my parents, we would always go to Las Vegas for our vacation because my dad worked at a radio station. He was a salesman. And it was a crappy station and they would get a trade deal from the Riviera Hotel so that we could go to Las Vegas. And it was always like in August. OK, oh. <laughs> so like, like no one is there in August. It's it's a thousand degrees. But I would always want to go see the comedians. You know, I saw Bob Newhart and Jack Benny and Danny Thomas. And, you know, it was great for me seeing comedians i you know i didn't particularly want to see the mcguire sisters or you know <laughs> robert goulet I could, <laughs> I could give it well you know when you're 14 oh. <laughs> you know it's a little hard to to get into those shows how did you deal in the early days with well hecklers or nights that you just bombed well i've never bombed i'm joking, I'm joking. um <laughs> I've always said that bombing, when I bomb, I feel the same way that I felt before I did stand up, which was lonely, alone, un, uh, just isolated and misunderstood and just pathetic. 
so I bombed. I I bombed in the last six years, and I was so confused because these are jokes that have always worked, and it wasn't an audience that spoke a different language. It was like like a Jewish gig. <laughs> <laughs> Florida and it was on Passover and I just felt like like if you think of your act as a zipper it never got started like it was always off so there was just no uh rhythm and I just felt myself bombing it was bad and it was worse because it was later in my career like I've been doing this 38 years um or some I'm not good at math but since 1985 so um in Florida Wendy nobody could hear you (laughs) it was the same problem as your very first (laughs) stand-up (laughs) <laughs> like no one could hear you I wish <laughs> um and then my I've been heckled a few times like mean heckles three that I can remember and that doesn't feel good either and then something in me comes up from somewhere and fights back I was gonna say and, do do you engage with them well you can't really ignore it I mean, people talk to me all the time and I love it, actually. I love like bantering and just having fun. It's like playing. Right. But the three times I've been heckled, um, the first was very early on in my career. I was at a college and I used to end my set by doing um, my impression of famous people's girlfriends, like (laughs) Picasso's girlfriend. Well, your audience (laughs) can't see, but... um, (laughs) I just contort my body (laughs) and um, somebody yelled, a guy yelled out, do your girlfriend. And I said, well, I'm not gay, but I could get more women than you or something like that. (laughs) I don't know where that came from, but it was like Uh self-protective. The second time I was heckled was in San Francisco. This woman was chatting with me throughout. As I said, I like chatting. And she early on told us, me and the audience, that she was also a stand-up comedian. So, okay, all right. So then I do a joke and she goes, I could have written a better punchline. And I was at the point in my career where I was tired and I didn't, really want to be there at that moment and I thought I'm either going to cry and run off the stage or I'm going to say something and I don't know where it came from but I said and where are you working tonight (laughs) that's great right right and then the audience is like yeah right yeah no you got them on your side and then the third time was I used to open my act saying I haven't performed in a while. I took last year off to have a baby and then people would applaud. And then I would say, that didn't happen. <laughs> applaud, applaud, laugh, laugh. And then I would say, but I did eat for two. And this woman yells out, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and 
you know, I'm sensitive about my weight. And I'm like, I'm sorry. <clears throat> oh, so I was like stunned. So I didn't say anything actually. And then later in the set, I said, I'm sorry, what was your name again, bitch? <laughs> That's all I could think of for that. <laughs> and again, it got the audience on your side. Yeah. Yeah. You must have over time, you know, you talk about, you know, different audiences. I'm sure you have stories where you walk out there and like everyone is drunk or it's like some corporate thing and it's like all 70 year old guys wearing fezes and, and things like that. And you're going, okay, <laughs> half of my stuff they're not going to get. I haven't had that feeling actually. Maybe it's part of my protective uh, ignorance, a way to not give in to anxiety. But I just, I go out thinking this is going to be fun. Again, uh, not Pollyanna. I don't know if that's the right word, Ken. Well, again, when you said you bombed, with jokes that worked to me as a writer, as long as I've seen that it works, then it works. Okay. It might not have worked for this audience, but I don't have to change the joke because the audience last night that saw this play, this line got a big laugh. Yeah. So it's like, okay, if I have a bad audience, I have a bad audience, but it's not the joke. Not the joke, and it's not I, you. You deliver it the same way. Maybe I should write a play instead then, and I wouldn't <laughs> take it so personally. Yeah. But I guess that is part of it, too, that when you go up there, it's you. They're judging you, which I guess when it works is great. Well, a friend, a college friend met me at a show in Davies, Florida. This is about 15 years ago. And she saw the early show, which couldn't have gone better. And then she saw the late show, which couldn't have gone worse. And she saw like the gamut of, okay, the jokes were the same. It was the audience was drunker in the second show and probably younger. And that's my life. It's different every show. When I used to do the warm-up on Cheers, the first season. Oh, you did? Yeah. And I had, you know, like three, four minutes of shtick at the beginning. And I could tell from the reaction from that crowd, you know, how they responded to those three or four minutes, whether or not we had a good audience or not. Absolutely. And I could I could report back to the cast and I could say, you're going to have fun tonight. You got a hot crowd. Or I could say, don't worry about it. They're they're a dull crowd tonight. It's not you. Just just go for it. But again, you could tell in like three or four minutes, like, oh, God, this is going to be dragging a dead horse across the finish line to shoot it. Absolutely. And I, part of my job, Ken, is watching the other comedians before me so I can suss that out. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, by the way, I think your sense of humor has informed me my whole life without me knowing it before I met you because I watch Cheers, I watch MASH, I watch everything you've written on. And I am so grateful to you. You've shaped my brain. <laughs> well, thank you. Now when I watch one of your performances and you get big laughs, I'm going to go, thank you. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Take it. <laughs> so that's part one of my two-part interview with Wendy Liebman. Come back next week. Uh, a lot more really, really interesting stuff. Thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to John Wolfert, to Howard Hoffman, Bruce and Jason Miller. If you want to get in touch with me, HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. That's HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. I'm still posting my cartoons on Instagram, so you can check those out. Please subscribe, and we'll see you back here next week for part two with Wendy Liebman. Have a good week. Bye. Hollywood and the Fox.